You're listening to We, we, we the Aether Podcast with host Adam Evans, within and without. Welcome. Ah, perfect. How are you doing? Hey, not too bad. Sorry for the uh, lengthy delay here. Um, it's uh, typhoon season in Hong Kong and it's it poured rain and our car didn't show up in time and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Is that a common occurrence? In Hong Kong, I mean, I see it in the news, but I'm, I'm oblivious to it. Um, yeah, it's um, it's not like the U.S. hurricane season where you get these big nasty ones. Um, Hong Kong usually doesn't get hit too bad. Uh, we get typhoon warnings when things are, I don't know, six, seven hundred kilometers off and are, are tracking towards Hong Kong. All that means is like the whole next week is just gonna pour rain. No real wind, maybe a little bit of wind, but it's it's just gonna dump rain, literally like probably all Vancouver's annual total in seven days. Uh-huh. And, and is, is like a flooding an issue at that point? Do they have to like uh, uh, yeah. evacuate? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, there is flooding. It's um, not so much in the main part, but in uh, the further areas of Hong Kong, there's definite flooding. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it just causes, it just causes traffic chaos. And I even tried to take the subway and it was just chaos. Mm-hmm. So it was just, it was, yeah, it was a nightmare. Is it just like so densely populated as well that it just makes it an issue to get around, especially during those, those, you know, those seasons Uh, hurricanes come in? Yeah, it does. I mean, you've only got so many roads and you've got, you know, seven or 8 million people in a very small space. So as an example, um, uh, one thing that started the whole delay today was the, the subways. I mean, it was just, I've never seen it like this. It was just jammed. The subway platforms were so busy. I mean, it's Friday night. Uh, Friday rush hour. The subways were so jammed that they closed the um, the gates, the ticket gates, so that nobody could get into the subway station because it was just too busy, too many people. Wow. Yeah, I see videos and that's, that's the extent of it for me. I, I couldn't even imagine. I mean, I, I lived in the core of Toronto, Ontario for about 10 years and that drove me <laughs> sane. So I moved out of, of the city a few years back just for that reason. There's too many people, too chaotic. And, you know, when, when those weathers you know, start coming in, like the heavy rains and things like that, it just yeah. gets it, yeah. get, it gets nuts. So, yeah, not a fan myself. <laughs> so anyhow, it's, uh, yeah, it's pouring rain. It's hot and humid. And uh, it's been quite an adventure getting back home today. But that's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Um, so, yeah, just to give you the, the premise of this podcast, basically it's um, kind of like open-ended, dis- open-ended discussion. I typically formulate um, the discussion around five to seven questions. Those are like base questions okay. I'll ask you. Uh, and they're generally okay. revolving around what you're already in, you know, participating in, your business and um, okay. everything. Um, in terms of, uh, I, I typically put it up about a week after our discussion here, so it's not live. Um, but I'll okay. give you the link and everything, and I'll include all of your information on the page for the podcast, which will include all your business okay. that you're doing and stuff. Um, but just to kick things off, do you mind just to, just introducing yourself, describing what it is you do? Oh, sure, sure. Okay. Um, so uh, my name is Greg Mazur, and um, I founded and currently run a private equity firm uh, primarily based out of Hong Kong. And the key things that we do were a little bit different than other um, uh, of the multitude of private equity firms which basically take investments in businesses. Um, we actually create businesses. So I guess it's kind of a little bit like an entrepreneur. Uh, we're not necessarily starting new businesses, but we're buying businesses. We're collecting them together. Uh, we're looking for opportunities. We're restarting old businesses. Uh, we're coming into failed businesses and trying to turn them around. Um, we primarily look at, primarily look at things at Asia and North America. Okay. And when you're interested in a failing business or something of that nature, do you typically take it over and then you'll obviously improve upon it? Now, is your goal at that point an exit? Are you basically looking to make it more attractive to a potential buyer and then try to forecast some sort of sure um well i'll give you an example uh we did uh shareholder activism uh a couple years ago and that was a publicly listed australian company and i guess similar to the canadian market the australian uh, market is very heavily natural resource weighted and probably also similar to the canadian market Many of those companies are um, not necessarily professionally managed. 
you have people that are very solid and strong in mining and mining engineering and you know geology but they may not be well suited to running a business um, and so you have a lot of junior mining companies again very similar to what you get on the toronto stock exchange or the tsx venture exchange um, that are uh, poorly managed and we had located a business that was based in australia but the assets were actually in Indonesia, which is a market that myself and my business partner know very, very well through our prior experience. And the share price had basically fallen 90% in about three years. Wow. <laughs> and, and through no, um, we, we analyzed it in detail and it really wasn't because of the mine, it was actually a, a relatively new mine, but it wasn't because of problems with the operation. It wasn't because of Indonesia country risk. It wasn't because this was a gold asset. It wasn't because the price of gold went down. None of that. And what you're kind of left with is, well, maybe the management aren't doing such a good job. Um, the short version was we found out that the company, well, I wouldn't necessarily say they were doing things that were illegal. They were definitely doing things. Um, they were a public company and they weren't necessarily disclosing everything that they should have to the public. So the shareholders were kind of kept in the dark. Um, and there was a lot more going on behind the scenes than the public was aware uh, the company in the good days had raised a bunch of money, so they were sitting on about 150 million U.S. dollars worth of cash, and that for you know a very tiny little company. But by the way, that wasn't even in operations and had a management team of about five six people. You know, you can live off that for the rest of your life, <clears throat> not have to do any work, and you know just go along with keep you know telling shareholders what you want and shareholders may or may not do anything about it mm -hmm. and and what what we found out and this is just a macro concept about the whole stock market in general um and i've been in the banking investment banking industry for over 20 years um the the the, the stock market has varying levels of um it's a crapshoot mm -hmm. i mean obviously if you're buying into companies like uh, you know, some of the big companies in Canada, if you're buying into TELUS or BCE or something like that, you know, you probably are getting most of the information and, you know, you're, you're very likely that things are not going to go incredibly wrong with those companies. But the smaller companies or the, the lower down the pecking order you go, some of those smaller companies, it's the Wild West. Yeah. A smaller company can meet a $500 million company. So we had a billion-dollar company here that went into the tank, went down to more than a billion, $1.2, $1.3 billion market cap. So that's pretty big. Um, went down to about $300 million market cap. And we decided that, you know what, we have a few ways to fix this. And we think that market cap could go up a lot. So we actually raised that with some of the, the board members, and they told us to take a hike in a very polite way or non-polite way. I mean, um, so we said, fine. We started acquiring shares and we acquired enough shares and convinced enough shareholders, um, to bring it to a vote and remove the board. And we installed ourselves and we installed more importantly, we installed people who knew what they were doing in the mining space, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, when we, when we got in there, we found a bit of a mess. Uh, a lot of things were not disclosed to the public that should have been. And what we ended up doing was um, selling off the main asset of the company because they actually legally didn't own it. And wow. they failed to tell that to shareholders. I mean, it, it was... And that's a main asset say, too. That's crazy. It was their 100% asset. Wow. And they didn't have legal ownership. Now... You'd think like, you know, okay, in a market like Canada, it's pretty black or white. You own it or you don't. In some of the more um, emerging markets in Indonesia, definitely is classified as that. It's, it's not black or white, but still, even the Indonesia lawyers were saying, you just don't own this under any circumstances. So um, what we ended up doing was we, 
we we didn't own it. We 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 ended up striking another deal uh, within some Indonesian owners uh, or pressuring the company to do so. We ended up actually taking most of the cash that was left in the bank account and we gave it all back to shareholders. So okay. we gave them a big big dividend. Here's your money back, um, and you know, basically cleaning it up. And since then, I mean, obviously the, the management is gone, the board members have gone, and most of those guys have all just retired. So that was a case where it was a, an exit, and it was something that was done in a two- to three-year time span. Okay, that was actually um, what I was just about to ask is how long does yeah. it typically take to get in there and restructure the whole thing? Like what type of investment that is for you time-wise? It, it, that was 100% of our focus um, between two partners. And uh, it was a lot of time living basically in Sydney. Um, and we, I mean, that, that's all we did. We lived and breathed this. Um, it, so it's it even nasty. your energy. It's not just your time. It's like it's it's fully involved, right? Oh, oh, it's completely. I mean, I'll give you examples. It it became a public issue, and we had the uh, former deputy prime minister of Australia call us nasty names in the paper. <laughs> um, basically, uh, it was an old boys' club in Australia, and my. My read of Australia business was they are light years behind Canada. Uh, and Canada's, Canada's light years Canada. behind as well. <laughs> well, uh, Canada's had the benefit of um, the U.S. being right next door. And so whether you like it or not, um, I'm a proponent of free trade. Right. The, you know, the, the free trade agreement with the U.S. and now with Mexico, that basically um, lit a fire under Canadian businesses to say, look, either you get competitive or you die. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, but in, in business, that has to be almost, not always, but that, that should be the way it is. Uh, you know, companies and countries and people should focus on their comparative advantage, what they do best. Um, so if I go and try to be, you know, a medical doctor, that is something that I'm not trained or well-suited to do. I'd probably do a horrible job and obviously I wouldn't be as efficient at it and it would cause a whole mess. I shouldn't be in that business. And so, you know, in the same way, uh, looking at Australia, Australia should not be building their own cars. It just, you know, for a market of whatever, 20 million people, it just makes no sense. So their, their last automotive business finally just shut down. Um, you can't compete with the Koreans and the Japanese, et cetera, who can just make their cars at half the cost and even ship into Australia. It's still, you know, 60% of the cost. Mm -hmm. So anyhow, um, I kind of rambling there, but basically what I was saying was that Australia was relatively backward because they did not have a giant neighbor next door and you know, the world's largest economy next door to try to, you know, uh, kick them in the pants. Really. Yeah, and not so much piggyback, but it's so much, you know, um, this happened in the mid-90s. This was under NAFTA. This was, again, you get competitive or you die. Mm -hmm. And like it or not, I mean, people, everything changes, and then all kinds of jobs were lost, and the, the Canadian economy shifted, but um, it, it shifted for the better, and it became a, you know, one of the stellar G7 economies for the last 20 years. So. That I sure as hell didn't see in Australia. And that permeated down to these little companies, not so little, where you had very lazy management and you had very lazy shareholders, very lazy shareholders, even the big pension funds, very lazy shareholders um, that just nobody wants to rock the boat. Everything's just a good old boys network. I mean, I'm generalizing, but, but I found it... Um, to be honest, I mean, I was a kid then, but this is Canada. It was Canada in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And what I'm seeing now, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if you've had experience with this, but I personally have gotten involved, especially over the past two years, in uh, more investing, especially in the Canadian market, um, a lot in the cannabis space, funny enough. And okay. I'm seeing that as being extremely volatile. It's almost a lot like what you're describing here. It just seems to be heavily inflated. There's not much reason for the valuation of the company. Like, for instance, even one of the uh, the stocks I was holding 
Um, you know, I don't look at it every single day. I don't do day trading and that's because it's just too stressful. But, um, I mean, it was up like something like, uh, 800%. And, you know, I just popped it open a couple months ago and it just tanked down. I'm still up on it, but it's only up about 200%. And the, the, the reason for the volatility, it, it's almost like it's just pure fluff. When I look at their finances, when I look at it, it's just, it's just media, it's just hype. And it seems to be like the TSX, especially, um, it's a lot to do with just the, the publicity of, you know, whether that's in the media or whether that particular company gets mentioned. Uh, for instance, uh, Corona did a merger with uh, one of the major cannabis, cannabis suppliers. I can't remember which one yeah. it was. And all of a sudden, this, the stock just flew up. And it, it's just, there's no real reason for it except for the fact that now, uh, actually, I think Budweiser is doing the same. Uh, they're starting their own Canadian uh, cannabis-based beer because now uh, Canada, as of, uh, I believe it was, I think it's going to be October 7th. It's October, yep. Yeah, so so now it's going to... And, and I'm even looking into that space myself, you know, in terms of starting up some sort of little business there uh, because it's going to be open to the private market. But it just seems like it's, it's so much to do with that media publicity that really sets the valuation of the stocks. And, and it's just not even justified when I look at the actual... Like when I received their, um, uh, their shareholder statements and all that stuff in the mail, yep. I look through them and I'm like, where is all this coming from? Like, why are people buying into this? And then you, you immediately see it when people start to sell off the shares and things just start tanking. Um, I also noticed that as well in the cryptocurrency space. You know, again, I, I, I picked up a good chunk of, uh, you know, I was a little uh, hesitant to get right into buying altcoins directly, but this was, you know, maybe about a year ago. So I went and, and I started buying into companies that trade in altcoins or create their yep. own new altcoins. Now, I, I talked to my, a few of my friends that are very conservative investors and they don't do anything like that. They hold stocks for five years and <laughs> that's what they do. They have full-time jobs and they don't like the risk. Um, and they were just laughing at me because uh, there's good opportunity in those spaces, but again, so heavily volatile. I mean, for instance, the, the cryptocurrency ones, like there's a few of them now that I like, I'm, I think a couple of them even closed down to be honest. Um, like I, I know for sure I've lost on some of those crypto ones. My overall portfolio is doing fine. But when I look at some of those, those, those companies that just don't have any justification for their valuation, it's just, it's just hilarious to me. I, I tried to slip in and make some good, <laughs> make some good profit there. But uh, unfortunately, I, I didn't on certain things, uh, especially on Bitcoin. It just completely tanked. So I'm just kind of patiently waiting for that to climb back up. Um, you know, there's, there's two things about new industries like this. Um, well, what, one, is, one is actually just about the stock market in general. You always have to separate the share price and the share value from the company. Because as you've said, you may have a company that does well or is doing something and it looks promising, but because of hype, because it's the flavor of the month or it's in the industry of the month, like let's say the cannabis industry, mm -hmm. because of, you know, an internal marketing or PR machine, uh, because of just the lack of cannabis stock out there and maybe the demand for people who want to buy into cannabis or cannabis uh, financial instruments, a stock will quite frequently, and I would say, and I studied this in school, I would say 90% of the time, the stock will either undershoot or overshoot what the fair value of the business is. So even when you buy, let's go back to Telus or BCE, which are, you know, your, your big, boring utility telecommunications companies, mm -hmm. even, or, you know, pick, you know, Hydro One or something in, 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 um, in Ontario. There's a real interesting situation with that too. Did, did you hear about the CEO of uh, Hydro yes, One? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. That's a whole <laughs> yeah. other discussion. But anyhow, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the issue is, you know, Hydro One maybe, and I don't know what the share price is, but let's say hypothetically, Hydro One could be actually worth a dollar. And the share price at any point in time could be 50 cents to $2, even for a company like Hydro One. Because it, it's the way the market works. And, and one also comment, I studied finance and economics and mathematics and statistics. If you want to do the stock market, just forget all of that. It's human psychology. I mean, it really is. It's nice to read all the reports and it's helpful, but it's human psychology. And so if you go to something such as the cannabis sector, I've got to bet that 
because of the points that I mentioned, stocks will overshoot or undershoot by factors of, you know, 20. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You yeah. can't really tell, is this the real value of the company? Is it really worth, I forget what the highest value cannabis company is in Canada now, like $20 billion or something? Yeah, it's, it's up there. You, yeah. You're like, is, is it really worth that? I, and the answer is, I don't know. And if you try to... If you try to predict it as well, maybe the real intrinsic value is $2 billion. So it's overshot it by 10 times. But the problem is maybe this hype and marketing buzz and scarcity factor and whatever is going to continue for the next three years. And so this $20 billion company is going to go to 100. It, it could. And right. so that's the same way with I actually advised someone exactly on Bitcoin when it was around, I don't know, I think it was approaching $15,000 or so. And I said, you know what? This thing could go to 50, but this thing could also go to zero. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what else you could, you, what else does that? Go to Vegas. Right, yeah. If you're going to do Bitcoin, I'm just focusing on the poster child. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to do Bitcoin and just do that, you might as well go to Vegas. Seriously, I mean, that, that's my advice. However, if you're interested in the industry, you've got to buy 20, 25 stocks and related stocks. Mm -hmm. Just that's what a venture capitalist does. That's the difference between private equity and VC. A venture capitalist will have to buy into 20 to 25 companies because you know what? 17 of them are going to go bust zero. Some of them will do 25% IRR returns. And one or two might be, you know, the next Apple or Google or whatever, and it'll more than make up for those 20 that went bust. And that's what you have to do, in my opinion, on the whole cryptocurrency and on the cannabis. If you're going to invest in that sector, you have to understand that many of them probably will go to zero. And a, a one or two may become you know, a major TSX listed company and stay that way for the next five years. Mm -hmm. No, it makes sense. What I ended up doing was just putting a bulk of um, a bulk of the investment into the index. I'm not sure if you heard of HMMJ, which is like the index for the cannabis. Um, oh, okay. Yes. Yes. So I put yeah. a bulk of it in there for my safety, basically, because that's, yeah. that's the one that's not so volatile. It's, it's pretty steadily increasing. And then I just branched off and through, you know, probably picked up about another five to seven of the smaller companies, like what you're saying. And exactly like what you're saying, some of them flew up and some of them tanked all the way down to the point where I just completely got out of it. I was like, this is, this is a roller coaster ride. I'm done. Like, <laughs> I can't, I can't deal with it. Um, yeah. You know, when one of the, and I forget which one, one of the founders and CEOs, so a billionaire on paper of not Bitcoin, not the number two or three, but anyhow, let's say one of the top five. And I, I don't know the names that well came out and said, and this guy owns like 50% of the company, is the founder and CEO, and said, if you're going to invest in my company, you have to be prepared to lose it all. Wow. That's so <laughs> yeah. When the CEO, he's got the most inside information, not in a bad way, just in terms of, come on, it's in his head. He, of all the people who may have the best shot of knowing where those companies are going, forget the analysts, forget all that stuff, forget the market, it's got to be the guys who founded the companies and that own them. Um, and if he says that, he's telling you, be careful. Yeah, it's not building up very much confidence, that's for sure. And you know, it's the, but you know what? This, this happens every couple of years. There is a, there's an industry that develops like this. So, um, you know, th this may be dating me a bit, but, uh, you know, if you go back, you know, I remember companies like when Netscape went public, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. it was the, it was the first browser, standalone yeah. browser to go public. And it rocketed, I think I might've been in university or I don't know, but it rocketed six times, I think on its opening day. I mean, it was something insane. And then it proceeded to, even though it went up six times, I think it still went up another five, six, seven times. And then at some point in time, it disappeared. So, you know, AOL, AOL, I remember working in, in Wall Street in New York City, and AOL was a $200 billion company.
well, you know, what is it now? Zero? Yeah, yeah. So you, you, it's just like betting, and this is a very broad, but it was just like betting on the, you know, the internet space. It is, um, you had to have bought a, port, a, a portfolio of companies. If you clearly, if you would have bought Apple and Google, you would have, you know, never have to work another day in your life, right? And just held on to those and forget everything else. It's funny, Don't I actually work. met someone. Yes. Yeah, so, that situation, but, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, but, but you don't, you know, that's hindsight. You don't know. Back then, I mean, look, Apple, if you remember way back, was basically bankrupt and Bill Gates had to write him a check for $250 million to bail them out. That actually happened. They were almost bankrupt. And Bill Gates saved them. Yeah, of all people. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you just, look, you just, you just never know. I, I would never try to... Um, think you're smarter than the market because that's not the case. The approach that you're taking is the right one, which is for the cannabis sector. Um, you know, if you want to invest, then invest in an instrument, which is a port, you know, a, uh, an index, mm -hmm. or 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 if there's mutual funds out yet for it, you know, a portfolio of enough companies. Um, if you want to say, you know what, here is a thousand, five thousand, ten thousand dollars that I would have otherwise blown on, you know, playing poker in Vegas, then you can take that and throw it into, you know what, I like this particular altcoin, I like this particular cannabis stock, but just be prepared to lose it. Right, right. You know, I've never thought of it in that way, and it's, it's a really good, it, it is very analogous to that Vegas betting style. I mean, it really comes down to, I mean, luck in a lot of cases, um, and even from so what this, I've experienced. This actually, um, this is actually a nice lead into what we're doing now, which I'll just spend a minute on. Sure. But we are actually doing something after having, um, I actually worked in the, um, the telecom and internet tech space in investment banking for firms such as Solomon Brothers and whatever, and Merrill Lynch. And we, we, we took all these companies public. I mean, not me personally, and I was junior back then. But we took these companies public. And so I remember all the hype when, you know, it was NASDAQ 5000 back in the Bill Clinton days, whatever. Uh, I remember all of that hype. It was, it was crazy. We had CEOs of companies trying to get investor time with our top research analysts. And he was going to, I remember he was going to the airport in New York, going to JFK and two CEOs of major telecom companies rode in the limo with him to the airport just to get his precious time to find out what his views were on their companies, their stocks, the telecom industry, the whole thing. I mean, it was, it was nuts. People were flying Concords back and forth when it existed to London because, you know, you just got to get there an extra three hours ahead of time. Otherwise, you know, all hell breaks loose. I mean, it was, it was crazy. So we've turned the exact opposite. We're not invested in, in altcoins. We're not invested in the cannabis space. We are invested in old biomass power plants in the US that are basically a big furnace with, of course, emission controls, big time emission controls on them. But we just burn wood waste. And some of these things can run for 20, 25 years. We have big investors out of Asia, like big uh, multi-billion dollar families and family offices that um, have said, you know what, we don't need our money back in five years and seven years. If you can generate a really good return, and this is a pretty boring, safe industry, there is no technology involved. There's no spin. There's no hype. It's just a technology. It, it's like a combustion engine. It hasn't changed much in you know 50 years. Mm -hmm. um, just sure, we'll just stay in this kind of forever. So we are actually looking at, at we, we've just, we, we bought a plant, I guess, a couple months ago, and we're buying a couple others now, primarily in California. And um, they're not going to make anybody rich overnight, but they sure as hell are better than, you know, the 3 4% you're earning in the bank by the long shot. And the risk is very, very low. And again, there's no tech risk. If a, something goes wrong with the part, you can actually make it. Um, very simple, very easy. And investors could stay with us for 20, 25 years. 
So a very different investor base, a very different type of investment. And it's like almost an untapped market in a way. I mean, it, or at least it's going overlooked. Is that how you see it? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an industry that is small, highly decentralized. It is run by, uh, there's been no progression of, um, of, of talent going into that space. I mean, if you're in the utility and power space, what are you going to go into? You're going to go into, you sure as hell not going to go into coal. Um, you're going to biomass. This this is biomass making electricity, not not making fuels, which is kind of sexy. Mm-hmm. This is just taking waste. So you're not growing anything and then burning it. That's not what you're doing. You're taking waste, leftover stuff. A lot of it, pine beetle kill wood, things like that. And the California Fire Service loves us because of the uh, fire hazard risk. So we're taking leftover, basically junk, but wood junk that otherwise is a fire risk. That's not sexy. What's sexy is solar, wind. That's that sexy. So you know what? The guys who run these things are in their 60s, 70s. They run these small little plants. They're just, they're kind of done. And if with, you spend a bit of money, you could refit these things and they can run for another 20, 25 years. Mm-hmm. And are you getting... So are you getting government support for this stuff? Are you, like, is it being subsidized, for instance, when you purchase a new plant uh, because it, it is something that is helping the environment, the, the local? Um... It, is, it is not subsidized. Like So as an example, wind and solar production in many places around the world is highly subsidized. So in Ontario, which Doug Ford wants to cancel. Yeah, and you know what? Even and, that has been on the decline in terms of the, the subsidy for that. It's like they initially started it out to make it seem like they're very green and energy efficient, yeah. and it's slowly on the decline over It's like this big front, you know? Yeah. Well, it was done by governments to, to jumpstart the industry, to try to um, – uh, because, you know, solar and wind were more expensive, and if – it still is more expensive. If you want to just generate cheap electricity, everybody around the world should either be building hydro, which Canada has abundance of, or burning coal. So coal's bad. It doesn't any way you slice it, coal is is not great. And wasn't that part of Trump's and, campaign was to bring back coal or something like that? Uh yeah. I think he I, mentioned something about bringing back and it became oh, a no, 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 no. I he absolutely has. I paused for a second because that that theory is, in my opinion, makes zero economic sense. I think in most that's, people's that's, opinion. That's like trying to bring back, you know, hey, the guys who make fax machines, ooh, they're out of business and they're <laughs> yeah. suffering. Yeah. We, we, need to, we need to help the fax machine industry. That yeah. makes And pagers are next. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, that's the same thing. So I will, I will keep my comments professional on that. But yeah. that's what it typically is. It makes... There is no economic sense, none, zero, nobody. There's nobody who has any knowledge of economics uh, or power that would say that makes any sense whatsoever. So um, to answer your question, which I haven't yet, um, we don't receive direct subsidies like that. We do, however, receive incentives um, so extra amount from, uh, not from the government, but what the government has done, uh, the government has said, we are, we, we have a multi-billion dollar fire hazard risk in the state. And it costs us, I think the number was in California, $3 billion a year, just firefighting, wow. which is a huge number. Yeah. What the, um, what the issue is, is they need to get rid of the wood waste and the wood waste, no, there's no other use for this wood waste. And as a result, the, the one use that's out there for this wood waste is to burn it and make electricity. You could burn it and just, you know, uh, burn o- open burning. And of course, that just emits all kinds of nasty pollutants into the air, which would not be good. Or you can burn it in biomass plants. And biomass plants uh, have extremely tight emission controls, especially in California. And we, by the way, we make electricity. So it is something that the California state government has um, mandated, just like all the states have you know, mandated renewable uh, levels 
that the big power producers and um, uh, some of the companies have to abide by. So there is, for an example, a biomass, it's very, very tiny, a biomass quota is, is a way of putting it, that some of the big, some of the, the government-owned power companies in California need to have so much of their power biomass. And I think off the top of my head, we're talking 0.1% or lower. So it's, we're not talking solar and wind where you're saying, hey, we want to be, I think California is saying they want to be approximately 40% wind, solar, and other renewable within the next 15 years. So biomass is just a little rounding error. So yes, we receive indirect government, state government benefit. We do not receive any money in pocket like the solar and wind guys do. Hmm. Do you see that's something that might change as time goes on? Because I mean, forty percent seems pretty um, ambitious. It seems really ambitious. Yeah. To, I'm not sure if, if you know, but maybe if they start to integrate other, like for instance, if they if they bring biomass into that and consider that as part of it. I mean, just really any any solution that's an alternative form of generating energy or or you know, source of power. Um, I, I would hope, of course, I'm biased. I would hope that there would be clearly, you know, enhanced incentive for biomass because from a, um, carbon neutrality standpoint, we are neutral over a 30 year life cycle, which is basically the life of a tree not life of a tree, but trees that are, are in harvested areas. Mm-hmm. So a tree in California, you can't clear cut. And I'm, I don't know the Canada rules, but you can't just go and clear cut. That's, you know, from the 1970s. You have to, you have areas that are designated. You cut down trees. These are logging companies that cut down trees, right? Which are used for timber and everything else. You got to build homes, the whole works. Um, but they have to plant, whether there or elsewhere, they have to plant and they have to do one for one. So over a 30-year cycle, the, the forest area that they've cut has renewed. And we're not talking about cutting down 200-year-old trees and replacing them with new ones. That's not allowed. So there is a 30-year cycle. And so if you think of it this way, um, the trees have sucked up X amount of CO2 over 30 years, we are, by burning it, putting it back into the atmosphere. But that, it was there 30 years ago anyway. It was stuff that was taken out over the past 30 years. We're putting it back. Unlike coal or unlike natural gas, which has been sitting in the ground for millions and millions of years, and you are putting that stuff now back into the atmosphere. So it's different. Um, the EPA in the U.S. has also said that, that uh, biomass is actually a carbon reduction technology because if you do the math and this is far too sophisticated for me um, but it actually supposedly works out that we're actually uh, net net reducing carbon that goes that goes into the atmosphere so unlike solar or wind which are clearly zero carbon right there's there's nothing happening there there's no carbon there might be some carbon that's spent in in building these things but in terms of operations that and hydro is zero carbon However, that's where the similarity ends. We have the multi-billion dollar benefit of, re- of removing all of the wood waste that we possibly can take to burn to make electricity. And that's, that's the, especially when you're in a market such as California, and th- that is the key benefit. Again, it's, we, we don't chop down trees. We take the leftovers from the logging operations they bring to us, so the the trees and limbs and branches and things that you can't use for anything that otherwise they would just use and sit on the floor. And that's on the forest floor. That's a fire hazard. Or um, after a forest fire has happened, there's all the the burnt leftover stuff. There's still carbon there and we can, we can burn that. Um, Or more importantly, all that pine beetle kill. And that's a big problem, for example, on the West coast of Canada where Mm -hmm. that's just, that's just, you know, waiting to go up in flames. And that, that has no use and it's a fire hazard and we can just take it um, and we burn it and we make electricity. Yeah, no, it seems to make sense. It seems to be probably a really efficient way to, to clear out that waste too. Now, do they just bring, bring you that, um, 
all that waste and just drop it. I mean, they're not paying you no, for the system, it, that, right? No, dropping it yeah. off. The, the, the way it normally works is there's independent contractors. So logging operations will, or, or we're talking, for example, we, we have, um, uh, we take some of the waste from the national forest. We're near uh, Lake Tahoe okay, in yeah. Northern California. And so there's the Tahoe national forest there. And it's a big Northern California, of course, is just loaded with trees and forests. So we are, uh, uh, there's independent contractors. Sometimes they own five trucks. Sometimes they own 10. Sometimes they own one. Um, we contract with a variety of different areas and a variety of different trucking companies. Uh, and they bring the waste to us. <clears throat> we, we measure it or weigh it. We check on quality. Um, we mix it in with our rest of our stuff. And then basically it's a fireplace. We burn it. And I would add that even I was impressed with this. We did a, um, in the town uh, of Loyalton, California, which has 300 people, that's our nearest uh, town to our plant. We showed a graph. We had a big town hall meeting because we wanted to assure them that, you know, we're not going to go pollute your city. Mm -hmm. um, and that's hard to believe. You're, you know, you're starting up a big power plant. Oh, yeah. And it's a city of, or a town of 300 people. <laughs> exactly. And we said, look, we showed them a graph. And we said, this is the amount of, um, you know, pollutants. And it's a variety of pollutants. It's um, SOX and NOX, it's called, uh, basically, uh, nitrous oxide and sulfur oxides. Uh, and then uh, carbon oxides as well, or carbon dioxides. Um, we showed them a graph saying, you know, here's kind of steady state, what the forest itself would, would put out in the air. So just basically nothing. And then we showed another graph. And it was much higher, and the town went, whoa, they were all, you know, there was a bit of a hush. And we said, this is how much 10 household wood-burning fireplaces emit. And there's definitely people use, especially in some of the rural communities in California, and I'm sure all over Canada, um, they're using wood-burning fireplaces, especially in the winter, to heat their homes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, we said, this is what 10 homes in your area produce and then we showed our graph of our pollutants and it was significantly below those 10 homes so there's almost nothing coming out of our plant that's how that's where the tech is that's how good emission controls have gotten and we spent a ton of money to make sure that that was the case and we had to the, the emission control standards in california the air quality boards are, are very very important to us and and they have very very strict standards so we emit almost nothing. We make electricity, and we greatly reduce the fire risk. Hmm. No, it makes, it makes perfect sense to me. Um, I'm just still surprised why that wouldn't be just looked at, and then immediately the government would step in, or at least the state uh, officials would step in and say, "Hey, we're going to assist this industry. We're going to help its growth. We're going to help you know subsidize it a bit. We're going to consider it to be equal to on par with solar, wind, and all these other sustainable sources of." Uh, of energy because just for I'll, that I'll, I'll give you yes i'll give you two reasons one is by nature of this business you cannot scale up so um i grew up in toronto and i lived uh, grew up in pickering and i lived not near but i could see from the distance the pickering nuclear plant right yeah off the, off the top of my head and i really don't remember but the pickering nuclear plant is about 80 times the size of a standard biomass plant eight zero hmm. yeah and high and hydro plants are a factor of you know 150 times or 100 150 times larger so you because of the logistics of having to bring in all this wood waste there there is not enough wood waste in a, in a near enough and economical enough uh, diameter from the plant to be able to make a huge plant. So you have a lot of many little small plants all dotted around rural United States. So... You can't go put a Pickering or Darlington nuclear biomass power plant in one of these places, number one, because it's just not economical. Not, not even anywhere near close that you can't do, number one. 
And number two, there's just, because it's in rural communities, who the hell are you going to get to staff all of this? It's impossible. There's not enough homes. There's not enough people, not enough trained engineers. Right, it's impossible. Right. So you have a quiet, under-the-radar, dying or, or out-of-favor industry. And I can tell you that most um, big power companies or big investors have no interest because it is a ton of work to do this. And we've decided to do this because we think, well, number one, we're, we're willing to put in the work. Um, it's not a nine to five job, that's for sure. And it's, it's, it's a ton of work. It's spending a lot of time in, in, you know, rural California. Um, my business partner is the CEO of the company and he lives in LA, but he spends over half his time, you know, in areas that don't have a hotel he stays at a, you know, one or two room, you know, B and B. Um, it's, it's, it's different. It's, it's, it's a challenge and it is, it may, it may be low tech, but it's a, still a complex business. Um, so if you're willing to put in the work and the time, um, it's a very interesting business. Well, it certainly sounds like it. It's interesting you mentioned the Pickering plant. Uh, I grew up playing football uh, for actually for the for the um, township, I guess, of Pickering. I was on the you know. Oh, in the my Pickering Dolphins. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I played for that for a few years in my teens, and whenever that plant would go off, we we practice right next to it, and we'd all have oh, to wow. go and like huddle under a nearby quote unquote shelter, which was not a shelter, <laughs> while the alarm was going off the whole time. And now, ever since I moved out of the city of Toronto, I'm close enough to that Pickering plant where they actually send me in the mail pills that... Yeah, I, I was going to say that. We, yeah. had, we had, again, growing up as a kid, we had pills in the medicine cabinet. I think it's to protect your thyroid or something. I don't remember. Yeah, but I, I haven't <laughs> taken them. I'm actually in the process of moving, too. I've listed my home for sale. I just want to go a little bit further east, staying along Lake Ontario, but just a little bit more oh, wow. property, okay. a little bit more land. Um, Actually, honestly, it's funny. We're talking about solar and all this stuff. Some of the properties I'm looking at, they actually have solar farms on them. So I'm looking at like 10, 15 acres and they have five allocated off to a solar farm that's being oh, wow. uh, rented by a company. So I'm, I'm actually interested in purchasing a home that I can monetize the land in, in a way, right? Yep. Um, yep. Yep. You know, well, that's similar to, we, we have uh, over 200 acres of land up in the, the Sierra Nevada mountains uh, where our plant is. And uh, there's plenty of uh, of solar activity there. I mean, you're up you're up high up, so you got big, nice blue skies many most of the year. And we're looking at putting in solar there as well. Yeah, I think I think it's a great idea. Just um, yeah, especially if you have the location for it. I try to put it on my house, but it, it the the way it's positioned, um, they couldn't justify putting it on the roof. It just wouldn't have gotten enough exposure. So yeah, yeah. bother with that. Um, but just to shift gears here, um, sure. What is the reason for you being in Hong Kong. So I know, I know you mentioned California and, and a lot of the involvement there and, and your CEOs um, out there as well. And sort oh, of sure. Around. sure. Why in Hong Kong? Is there any particular reason? Um, I started off, I actually have never worked full time in Canada. Um, I started off working in New York. I then went to London and while I was in London, was assigned to work on a project that was based in Asia and based in Hong Kong. And the work that I was doing in Europe was working uh, with some very, very large companies where I remember the decision-making process was incredibly slow and painful. So I remember actually a large nuclear power in the, in the past, a nuclear power utility, Weber AG in Germany, and a very traditional old board, one of the largest companies in Germany, and things were slow. Very difficult to get stuff done, so it was very difficult to get deals done, and deals is how investment bankers get paid. Uh, when I moved out, or when I was working on deals out in Asia, I found the similar size companies, but they were run by one owner. So you had a billionaire, you had people like Li Ka-shing, you had you know, uh, Vincent Tan in Malaysia, you, you had a variety of companies that were family owned, family run, and decisions were made in five minutes, not five weeks. 
And that was the, that was the key thing that brought me to Asia. But I just saw, and this was in the late 1990s, I saw just an, ex, I, the, the key thing was, and again, I'll use Germany as an example. You know, Germans took all of August off and God forbid we work past, you know, six o'clock on a Friday. Um, and, you know, I understand the work-life balance issue, but there are times when you really have to, you know, you have to work hard. Yeah, of course. And, yeah. and one of the comments I made, um, I saw an article in TechCrunch, which I'm not too sure if it's out of Toronto or out of, um, no, maybe Tech Vibes. Anyhow, mm -hmm. the Canadian equivalent of TechCrunch. And they said that the average entrepreneur in Canada works 50 hours a week. And I was like, well, that's kind of what a hairdresser does in, you know, Asia. Like, are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. um, so what I saw in, in Germany, and again, I, I spent time in Canada. And again, the work-life balance was important. But I felt at my age at the time that it was not important. And I came to Asia where people worked uh, round the clock, not, not, and also not to look good, but just to get things done. Mm -hmm. And so we did so much activity. We did so many deals. We did, we did so many interesting, fun things. And I loved it. And I stayed. Mm -hmm. So it's just a matter of efficiency, really, just doing more things in a shorter time with, with less restrictions, right? There was, there was very, and I'm speaking about the private sector, there was very little bureaucracy. There was a, a drive to do better. And again, whether you are a janitor or whether you're a doctor or whether you're a teacher or whatever your profession was, I found people took maybe a little more pride in what they did. And people were not used to government handouts and so therefore took care of each other. And I really, I really like that. I found I've done um, business in maybe over 20 countries around the world. And, you know, once you get to some very advanced countries that are very wealthy, people can get very lazy because you can be. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you can do, I'll give you an example. I'll give you Australia again. Um, one of my friends owned a meat pie franchise. You know, pies are a big thing in Australia, one of their national foods. And um, I think they were paying people to warm up and serve you the meat pie, like at a counter, a takeaway counter. I think we're looking at $28 Australian an hour. And I thought, you know what? <laughs> I know people have to make a wage and a living wage, but if you're making $28 microwaving a meat pie and serving it to me, something's wrong. Something is really wrong. And that's why I felt, you know, you don't get that in Asia. You, you want to make money. You want to earn a living. You have to work your ass off. There is no very little pension schemes. There's very little. And again, I'm not saying that's negative. But people here, and it's a huge generalization, but have a different mentality. And, you know, when you're in your 20s or your early 30s and you're focused on your career, you know, I, I was not interested in getting married and having 2.2 kids and a white picket fence and a station wagon or a minivan. Um, that's how I grew up, but that's not what I wanted. And I felt Asia was the, um, a great market for me to get in on at a very early stage and ride that. And I, looking back, I absolutely made the right choice. You know, every time I go to cities, whether it be Hong Kong or Singapore or Shanghai, you know, it, it looks like Blade Runner. I mean, you compare yeah. the infrastructure, you compare the infrastructure in Hong Kong and, and Singapore and the airports, the roads, the, the, the subway system, even though it was kind of flooded today, but the, you compare all of that to, I don't know, pick any city in North America and North America is in the third world. Right. I mean, when's yeah. the last time you've flown into, you know, in and out of us airports? I mean, that's like, wow. Yeah. So I, I like living in a blade runner type environment. Yeah. Just very open to change and just uh, constantly evolving and, and, and a more 
like, like at a faster rate. It's funny, there was actually this uh, story I was reading just recently where I'm not sure if it was China or it was, it was some country in Asia, but they were looking on expanding their subway system and making it more efficient. And just the how practical they are and just the, the open-mindedness of the thinking. So for instance, in this, in this case, they, they basically used spores or my, mycelium beneath the Earth's yes. surface. And then they had those spores. Basically, they put food sources throughout at all the various um, transit stations. And they allowed these spores to sort of map out new, more efficient ways of getting to those food sources. And then they, they basically constructed, or they're in the process of constructing uh, new transit systems and new pathways based on the pathways that those spores and mycelium took. So I mean, it's just amazing. I, wow, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'll send you the article afterwards. That's 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 Star Trek level stuff. Wow. Yeah, that's and, a, and this, this is outside of the box thinking that I don't think North Americans would do. Like, I don't think they would even go that far. Um, it's just this connection with it, not not even just technology, but nature and understanding of of the Earth. Um, I, I think it's in Hong Kong as well. Wow, that's that's impressive. That's something to be honest that I haven't seen too much of. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but again, it's changing. So your comment on connection with the Earth, um, you know, China's gone from ten years ago. I think it was seventy-eight to eighty percent reliant on coal, and the cities, and they still are, you know, heavily polluted. But the Chinese leadership has obviously realized this has a massive health, economic, everything cost. This is going to bring our country down. And so they have subsidized the hell out of solar, wind, and a whole bunch of things um, because they realize that we have to clean this up or we're going, you know, we're going to go downwards fast. Yeah, the air pollutants are, are through the roof there. I mean, it's ridiculous to the point where, I mean, I, I purchase supplements. I make sure that they don't come out of those countries because, the, yeah. you know, the, the uh, plants or whatever is growing in those environments those supplements are just not, they're tainted at that point, really, by the pollutants. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, what's happening out here, because I'm in Hong Kong at the moment, but what's happening out here is, uh, let's just take China. It, it's advancing, and everyone, you know, other people have said this many times, but, you know, it, it, in what, you know, the U.S. or Canada took, you know, 100 years to go through, China's doing in 20, right? Yeah, yeah. So, or, or less, and, and thus, there are a lot of hiccups along the way and a lot of things that are going to get forgotten. And I think the environment, uh, at least I can see over the last 20 years, the environment was clearly one of them. I've been to the, the central uh, provinces in China, and I've gone to visit coal mines where you know, the rivers are yellow and the sun supposedly is shining when you look at the weather forecast, but it is, you know, it, it's just disgusting. You can't even see the sun. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I smell it in the air. You get off the plane in Shangzi in China, which is one of the coal country, one of the coal capitals. I mean, you, you, you taste the sulfur in the air when you get out of the airport. You just That's do. Yeah. It permeates your clothes. So again, I think all of that was forgotten in the, in the race for progress. Um, but I honestly believe that, you know, the tripping point has happened and they realized we cannot continue like this. Um, so I, I actually quite positive. I think probably maybe over the next 20 years, you know, I, I wouldn't doubt that China will be an environmental leader in 20 years, yeah. like a Germany or something. Yeah. I actually would have more confidence in that than what you had, had mentioned earlier with California shifting to a 40% you know, renewable energy. Yeah, source. yeah, so, so would I. Oh, no, so would I. I mean, there's, uh, you know, I study economics in university, and I would, um, there are some pros to having a centrally planned economy. Not completely centrally planned, but there are some pros to having a guiding effort. Uh, people that know what they're doing, not necessarily politicians, but technocrats. Right. Um, to, to guide an economy. So, for example, if you look at the success of Singapore, Singapore was a definitely very heavy-handed guided economy, maybe a little too much. But, uh, you know, give an example, China versus India. I've been to China 50 times. I've been to India 20, 30 times. India is a free-for-all democracy that is not very centrally controlled. Um, and it's, you know, it's very similar in size to China, and they've made great strides in the last, I'd say, five to ten years. 
but it's chaos and it's far far it's not even not even remotely comparable to what china's done in the last 20 30 years and in my opinion that all has to do with the, the centrally planned economy in china mm -hmm. yeah no i haven't actually visited those places i you know i work with a lot of people out of those places and we have clients there and stuff but it's something i've never traveled to and i get people constantly telling me like hey come you can stay with me you can you know but um i just haven't found the time but i, I, would, I would love to take the trip for sure and just experience those you know the, the shift in in the overall environment, you know, from the people to the, the technologies to the city space. Uh, but as I well, said, the, the, like, I get, I get problems the, even just going into the city of Toronto at this point, just I, I, I feeling <laughs> like I can't, I can't do it. It's too soon. I got to get out. <laughs> well, if you don't, if you don't like Blade Runner, and I mean like the original one, if you don't like Blade Runner, I mean, that is, you know, go to Shanghai at night when it's raining. That's, that's Blade Runner. Hmm, yeah. Yeah. Not sure if I can handle it con continuously, but I would definitely yeah, take a trip in and out. Uh, so I have a question for you here. What would you, if you could go back, and we may have already covered this to some degree, but if you could go back sure. and speak to 20-year-old Greg, what would you, what piece of advice would you tell 20-year-old Greg? Wow. Lots. Uh, okay, just off the top of my head. Um, Number one, um, your career or life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. So uh, that's not my words. That's someone who told me that, and I ignored him way back when. Yeah, that's how it goes, uh, yeah. Yeah, you, you just don't, you know, I was so focused on that next promotion, on that next whatever. Just calm down. You know, you, you have to focus on the, the, the longer term. And don't get stressed out when you get overlooked for a promotion or, or something doesn't go your way that year. You know, um, it, it is a marathon. And you, you, have to, you have to plan. I don't know if plan is the right word, but you have to look at your life and your career and what you want to do and what you want to accomplish, whether it's career or anything. You have to look at it on a, on a much wider scheme. So that's one thing. Um, the second thing is you meet a lot of people you know during your your life and two things have kind of materialized one is there actually are a lot of um i was going to say bad people they may not be bad people but there's a lot of people out there in the world just like in the movies or in tv who may not have the best moral compass and some of them, it's way out of, they're corrupt as hell. And others are, you know, they, they may have been, it's just, it's just different. People are different. And you, you just don't be so trusting would be another one. Um, so just be aware of that, that, that those people do exist. And I've had personal experiences with that. So that's why I say it. Uh, and I would say just the, the final aspect of, of when you meet all these different people, don't, you know, I've done lots of work with a lot of different companies because I was a, an advisor and you, you might spend a year in the trenches with these companies and with these people and you do the deal and you make the money and you celebrate and it gets printed in the wall street journal and you get a big bonus and you're happy and you move on to the next deal. You know, you really should have just kept in touch with those people and just followed up and don't, you, you want to keep those people as, as you want to keep in touch. And so um, that, that would be my final point, which is you'll meet a lot of different people. Some will be bad, which you clearly have to pick up quick and you have to stay away from them um, because they're a very bad influence. But there's a ton of people out there just keep in touch. And I don't care how, how that is, but face-to-face, -face, of course, is always best. But just say hi to them every year, every two years, every three years, whatever it is. It's very helpful. You never know when you might, they could be helpful to you. Mm -hmm. Oh, I really like that. Or vice versa. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I personally had a lot of that experience myself, just people that will reach out to me after five, 10 years and say, hey, you know, we've got this project we need you to work on or something to that extent, you know. And I think it is really important to keep those long-standing relationships. I mean, even in our case, I think we've we've kept in touch. Um, yep. Yeah. For, for several years now, 
Um, and, and I think it's really important to build those. But that, that's some great piece of advice, just to almost walk around the world with a little bit of um, I know what you're saying about other people and, and just almost, not to have your guard up, but just be prepared, I guess you could say. Yeah, just it's, it's um, you know, I, I grew up in a Leave it to Beaver neighborhood, um, not with a minivan, but basically the, you know, the, the white picket fence kind of thing. And, and it, the world is not Leave it to Beaver. There are some very um, interesting people out there who will take you for a ride. And you just have to be aware of that. And again, that's the bad side. The flip side is, there's a lot of people out there that you just should, you never know where people are going to end up. You just have no clue. So I'll, you know, I'll give you an example. A good friend of mine who I did keep in touch with now runs uh, no, one of Norway's largest, largest companies. And he's the CEO of Telenor, which is their big telecom company. It's a big multi-billion dollar company. And he's probably one of the top five business guys in Norway. You know, and I'm, I'm happy I know the guy. I know he's a good guy and I can vouch for him and the whole works, but I'm happy. I'm happy for him. He was a good guy, but it it's it's good to know people like that around the world. Right. Yeah. Um, I have people who used to work for me, and I'm not joking, who are billionaires, and that's how Asia works. You can come from nothing to be a billionaire in 20 years. Mm-hmm. Just given uh, that, that work ethic, right? Yep. And you know, I did what I thought helped them way back when. And at certain points in time in my career now, they could return the favor. And that's, that's a great thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is. And uh, I think that's probably a good note to end this on. I think we've reached almost an hour, but um, I just want to take uh, this time to thank you. I know it's pretty late there, so I'll let you probably get ready for bed pretty soon. And, um, oh, no problem. Yeah, and I'll, I'm, I'm almost in the middle of my day, so I've, I've got my developers and whatnot to talk to. But um, thank you for taking the time, and uh, maybe we can have another chat again sometime soon. But um, otherwise, I'll let you know once this is uploaded, and if you wanted to just uh, have a listen or share with some people. Oh, sure, 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 sure. Have you no done problem. any podcasts before? Uh, no, but I've done, um, in the past, I've done many interviews with, like, uh, newspapers and, mm, okay. and things okay. like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I thought this would be a pretty cool conversation to have, and, and it really has been. It's been really informative, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to benefit from it, especially those that are interested in uh, either getting involved into business or investing or whatever it may be, even sustainable energies. But um, again, thank you for the time. And uh, is there any closing uh, things that you wanted to share, your, your website or anything that uh, if someone wanted to go have a look? Uh, uh, sure. Uh, we don't really market ourselves. I'll give the... Um, the biomass, which is um, Amer Power, so like American Power, but it's M A sorry A M E R and then Power dot com, mm-hmm. and that's our uh, biomass site that has some information on the biomass industry. It has information on the plant that we own. Of course, we're buying more. It has a little bit of information on us, and it has some wider information on biomass, on sustainability, and all of that. Perfect. Well, I'll include that link as well in, in the uh, description of this podcast for the page, but um, that, that'll pretty much be it. So thank you again, and uh, we'll talk again soon. All right. Thanks a lot, Adam. Bye-bye.